Hey y'all, it's your host Liz and I am super excited to be taking over the airways at the radio station WATR 1320. And like always, I'm joined by a few of my friends, Bilal and Dimitri, and we have a super special guest, Dr. Latanya White, and she's going to teach us all about dynastic wealth and how to use money to liberate ourselves. So you won't want to miss it. And here we go, jumping right into the first hour. So I'm going to, it's going to take me a while to undo saying water very strong in my head. Yeah, yeah, but so building leadership and community, building legacy, legacy and, and community. community, black. Yeah. So you guys also have a black business network, mm-hmm. right? Yep. And is that part of the seminar? series you're talking about yeah so one of our initiatives our main initiatives initiatives that we're doing um this year is the black business network and that includes a number of things one it includes a number of networking events mm. okay. in which we encourage you know business owners but you know we focus on of course black business owners and people who have interest we bring them together try to get them to connect and bounce ideas even collaborate with each other um we've done that so far with some of the people that have have come um we have seminars as well in which like i said we bring the education of what it takes of what it means to be a business owner um how to expand your business and try to give them a head start because a lot of people especially in the black community when they want to start a business they're starting from the ground up Mm -hmm. you know know, across we don't have (laughs) um access to um education Mm -hmm. um we don't have examples of how to write a business plan. Let's talk about it. Um, a lot of people are learning finances as they go. Come on. And by the time they get that tax bill, it might be a little bit too late. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> <laughs> so now you're in the hole. And then on after that, um, we actually have a black business directory that we're developing, mm-hmm. believe it or not. So Ooh, I got to get you, up on there. Yeah, absolutely. Let's, um, yeah, how yeah. would – how would this is turning into an infomercial, <laughs> but right, listen. how would – how would someone get involved if you were a local black entrepreneur and you wanted to sign up to be part of it? Yep. So you could go to our website, which is Black Waterbury. It's B-L-A-C-W-T-B-Y.com. Um, you can register your business up there. Um, we're still pretty small and pretty approachable. We're not large yet, so you could either talk to I like how you said not yet. <laughs> not, not yet. yet. You not can yet. still, for the time being, run into Dimitri on the yeah, streets, Dimitri and he Cole's. will talk to you. Yep. Dwayne Pittman Jr. Everybody runs into Dwayne. And then Jessica Irvin, and we could put you up there. And we're also accessible on social media especially facebook and instagram so great um and we will be doing some outreach in that respect too so we will be knocking on some black businesses doors and ask and asking if you guys want to be part of the network so be on the lookout for that so that directory believe it or not we didn't publish it yet but we have about 35 plus businesses wow oh, let me yeah. hurry up and get uh, yeah, <laughs> listen while we are on break i know where i am going if <laughs> you right. are a local black business listening right. um well if we what if we have black businesses outside of waterbury listening can they get up on the directory yeah I don't see why not. Um, I remember uh, a few months, I mean, a few years ago, I remember taking the liberty of looking at, you know, black Mm -hmm. businesses um, across the state. Mm. And I put the directory and I posted on social media and then people were, you know, commenting on everything. And I probably had a list of almost 100 black businesses in the state of Connecticut alone. So, I mean, eventually we do want it to be bigger. Um, We just, you know, focus on Waterbury right now because that's where we are. That's where we operate out of. And... The businesses we don't discriminate against. You know, you don't have to have a storefront. You don't have to have like a barbershop. You well, can good because mine is virtual, so I'm gonna exactly. hit y'all up. You can be virtual. <laughs> you can operate out your living room. You can operate out the trunk of your car. Um, you know, we'll just get have your contact information. If you don't have an address, we really will stress the contact um, information. And if you do have an address, we will put it up there. Um, hours of operation, um, products. 
the name and we're also we'll be all featuring a black business of the month believe it or not every month so we'll be doing interviews and trying to promote these businesses as well that's great fantastic all right y'all we're going on a break and i'm going to get my business in order uh we are taking calls at uh 11 30 so if you want to join in on the conversation the call-in number is 203-757-1320 Hello, hello, hello. It is Liz, host of Talk and Combos, here on Talk of the Town, and I'm with some awesome folks. Who am I with? Uh, Dimitri Coles, uh, president of Building Legacy and Communities. Come on. <laughs> and Bilal Tajuline, one of the co-founders of It's Time Waterbury. And we are the visionary voices of the community. That's okay? right. <laughs> we weren't the first ones to say it, but now we will, so it must be true. Right? <laughs> And uh, we're getting ready to have uh, Dr. White on the the line with us to talk about dynastic wealth. And um, we, you know, in in the beginning of the show, we were talking about um, sharing something in honor of Black History Month. And and we had some awesome facts in regards to, like, um, health and vaccinations, the black dollar, um, historical events as far as Port Chicago 50. And um, then we were talking about... um, uh, black building legacies and communities and all the different things that they're doing. And if you, you missed that, please check them out so that you can get your business um, listed. But, um, you know, what do y'all think? We kind of will get into a little bit of policy discussions before she joins us. But, you know, there's been a lot of legislation trying to get or not speak about Black History Month or, you know, removing books and things from mm. schools and things like that. Um I didn't I haven't read really into the articles as like what is the point like what is it that they hope that this will do um have y'all seen anything in regards to that about like like wh- why like why are we doing this um well I know the debate from um I'll call it the other side mm-hmm. <laughs> um there they view an emphasis specifically on any culture's history as mm-hmm. a means of division mm-hmm. um but I think and I would argue that that principle is not rooted in the American way, as they mm-hmm. know, as we see. You know, if America is this melting pot of cultures and, you know, and we're celebrating diversity, then what's the bad thing about focusing on individual cultures? Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And, you know, again, I think this conversation is right on time about how do we. How do we take charge, especially if there are things in place that sometimes try and, um, we'll say, take the community down? And so, uh, Dr. White, how are you doing? Can you help us out today? <laughs> hey, good morning, friends. How are y'all doing? We are good. It is so wonderful to hear your voice. Thank you so much for having me. I am looking forward to to adding a bit uh, to this conversation. Definitely a hot button issue. I'm in Florida, Oof. Um, so at the heat yeah. of it, the hottest button, exactly. <laughs> the hottest button. Yes, and I am in Tallahassee, as a matter of fact. So yeah. Well, again, thank you so much. And let me introduce you to my wonderful friends. I have Dimitri Coles and Bilal Tajaldeen. And so, again, thank you so much for talking with us today. Mm-hmm. So I am just going to jump in because you are, it, you know, so, okay, I'll slow down a little bit. So <laughs> listeners, okay. um, I met Dr. White. She had um, come on to my podcast and was talking about dynastic wealth and it 
um, was and still is a conversation that I think about often, especially as a, a business owner. And, you know, you shared and talked about sometimes the loneliness because we're often the first ones kind of breaking the ceiling and, and, and stepping out. And it could be like, you know, like we touched upon earlier, you know, you're the first one, you're looking for resources, you're trying to figure out things and you often don't have the resources. Um, so I, I so appreciate how you you have um singled in on dynastic wealth and you were doing so much education and so can you please introduce yourself to the the folks and let them know what is dynastic wealth thank you so much um well i i actually stumbled upon this concept of entrepreneurial dynasties as i was conducting my dissertation research i had um, i wanted to explore and make a logical case for why access to entrepreneurship education needed to be easier. I um, I come from a background, I like to say in my former life. I taught entrepreneurship for 11 years at, a, at an HBCU. And I learned that there were some prerequisites um, that was preventing students from getting easy access to, um, to enrolling in the class. And, you know, I couldn't figure out what the problem was but I also did not understand the politics of higher education. Mm-hmm. So I know we're going to talk a bit about education in general, but my expert, my my experience was in the hot button aspects of higher education as well. So I learned about this concept of entrepreneurial dynasties from a um, report that was produced or published by the Institute for Policy Studies. And every year, IPS they'll publish this report titled Billionaire Bonanza. And in 2018, they focused on inherited wealth dynasties Mm -hmm. and the impact that those dynasties have on perpetuating the racial wealth gap. Mm. So I I learned that a family reaches dynastic status once they have controlled either their their business, say think of the Walton family, the Walmart family, Mm -hmm. or their wealth, has been controlled like the Rockefeller family for at least three consecutive generations. Oh, wow. Um, And so that distinction between, you know, all the excitement about generational wealth versus dynastic wealth, dynastic wealth is empirical. It can be repeated. There are specific steps and strategies that show how families package, protect, and pass down their wealth for these men, and it's a minimum of three consecutive generations. Um, there's insights on the directionality of wealth transfers, not just down from me to my daughter, but it's across from me to my sister and my cousins and even up to, you know, my mom, my aunts and uncles, and even my grandmother. Um, but I think when when you and I spoke last, Liz, I think the thing that was most impactful was the five different forms of wealth yes that dynastic wealth encompasses so we got three generations four directions of wealth transfer and five forms of wealth that those are the distinctions between generational wealth and this evidence-based construct of dynastic wealth Mm-mm-mm. yeah no I'm, I'm, <laughs> I'm taking notes i feel like i'm in a, a class on on this right now this is fascinating Thank you, thank you, thank you. So, so what what other questions can can we can we uh, can I answer about the relationship between this transfer of knowledge 
and what's happening in education. Mm. Mm. Right? Like, <laughs> what are your initial thoughts? Like, mm-hmm. I have like so many, mm. but um, I'll, know, let, I'll, let, <laughs> I'll let you run with it. So like, why do we need to know this, doctor? Why, how can this help us? Yeah. Um, I, I, so I shared on a call last night with the African American Entrepreneurs Association. Um, there's a quote by Audre Lorde that says, the master's tools will never dismantle the master's house. Mm. So if we really take a look at, you know, education as a tool for equity and equality, right? why on earth? Would the political and powerful systems, why on earth would those systems want to enfranchise people to change their own narrative? Why? Mm -hmm. They wouldn't. So one aspect of dynastic wealth, one of those forms of wealth that dynastic families really hone in on is the transfer of knowledge. So mm. it's actually referred to as the wealth of knowledge. And they'll get their family together you know, on, a, on an annual basis, not at a family reunion, but at a family retreat. And what they do, every generation of the family is involved. Um, so in my family, there are four generations of us. My grandmother is 90 years old. She's God still bless. with us. We were... Thank you. We were on Zoom last night with Grandma. So so my daughter, who's eight years old, like her and her cousins, they would be learning about, you know, economic literacy, blockchain, NFTs, like those kinds of things, right? Um, But that generation also begins, they open the family retreat by reading the family constitution. And that captures, you know, who are we as a family? What's Mm. our identity? What are our family's values? And the history and the lived experience of members of the family, those things are captured. And it's that transfer of life lessons, of failures, of, you know, the ropes, the skips, the the pits to avoid. It's that transfer of knowledge that elevates a lot of these families so that every new generation doesn't feel like they are starting from scratch. Oh, right there. Like right there. Cause I think that is kind of like the biggest thing. And again, Bilal, you kind of touched upon that when we think of, um, I believe you said like white males are more likely to pass that wealth on and that, that, you know, again, that knowledge and just the struggle in, in the African-American community. And mm-hmm. if we can share knowledge, we're, we're not starting from ground one because it's yeah. usually like those, what is it? They, many um, businesses fail within that first year mm-hmm. because yeah. there's so much knowledge, right? And if we can pass down that knowledge, um, that just sets up the next generation. And I think, you know, sometimes, um, I think sometimes in the black community, we're afraid to talk money. We're like, it's going to tear the family mm-hmm. apart or, you know, things like that. But um, just really that highlights the, the importance of, of sharing that knowledge and having that consistent conversation. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, and you know, you have bring up a, a huge point. So I've actually walked with my family over the last two and a half, three years about um, building our own family dynasty, and it was 
it was a struggle. Like, <laughs> I, I, we, we had certainly gotten closer, but it was, there was a point in the work that I was doing that I just felt so dejected. I felt mm. so isolated and trying to get everybody, in, not just into the same space, but on the same page. Right. Um, and one of the things that I recognize in retrospect is I was looking at wealth building almost completely through an entrepreneurial lens, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. So, and at the time I was the only entrepreneur in the family. So I was excluding everyone from this conversation about wealth because I, I had all these blinders mm. for lack of a better term. Um, so Dorothy A. Brown, she's a, a professor at Emory University in Atlanta or in Georgia, and she wrote a book titled The Whiteness of Wealth. Mm. And it was that book that changed the whole dynamic because her book looks at American tax policies and how racism is built into American tax policies, even in, you know, where my daughter, she's eight years old, second grade, in public school in Florida, right? Um, mm-hmm. And I love my home, but what I did not know to do was look at the school zone that this home where we live, where she would be going to school, mm-hmm. and it's not a very high-rated school. So Dorothy Brown's book looks at even from where we when we are able to purchase a home, right, mm-hmm. without accounting for redlining and mm-hmm. predatory lending, when we purchase homes, do we know enough to buy in an area that has a strong school zone mm. so that our children's second, like their elementary school, high school, that they're prepared for college? And then when they get to college, when they're college age, are they going to be able to apply to and receive scholarships at a competitive academic program, Mm -hmm. which is going to lead to, you know, career opportunities. So all of these things. Um, And so everybody in my family was able to see themselves on that continuum of wealth building. And it wasn't just, it was no longer just about entrepreneurial wealth building. Mm, Absolutely. Um, I'll pause for a second. Dimitri, Bilal, any any questions, any thoughts? Um, Dr. White, um, yeah. thank you for taking the time with us again today. Um, I just want to introduce myself. I'm a friend of Liz and Bilal. My name is Dimitri. I'm Waterbury Grown here as well. Um, okay. Um, what brought the three of us together is because we all like to do work in the community, right? So, um it's great, and I'm sure you would agree, but correct me if I'm wrong, it's great to, you know, to build individual wealth, but that information sharing mm-hmm. and uh, education sharing um, is supposed to uplift the community as a whole. So mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. now um, I find myself individually, now I find myself trying to look at different perspectives. And as we know, you know, the black community, they have a whole bunch of ideas <laughs> and a whole bunch of solutions. Um, but, you know, there's no one method that you know, people, we could agree on. So yeah. I just want your opinion on this. I came across, are you familiar with Dr. Jared Ball? No, I'm not. 
Oh, well, um, he was a guy. I, was, I didn't read his book, um, but I just wanted your perspective on it. I don't know if it's true or not. I'm not making the case on this at all. <laughs> I just want to preface that whatsoever. <laughs> um, but I was, he was on, I was watching him on YouTube, and he wrote a book, and it was called The Myth and Propaganda of Black Buying, Buying Power. Hmm. So the central theme of this book was that, um, well, before I even get into that, you know, we hear a lot of things like, you know, if you want liberation, you know, as a black community, if you want freedom, what we need to do is, you know, invest in, you know, in black businesses, like, you know, find the black grocery store, you know, buy, if you want a candle, go to the black candle business and things mm-hmm. like that. And then there will be economic shift that would uplift the whole community. Um, and the theme of his book, he was saying that idea um, was a myth and that it seems to be just uh, an inadequate alternative and a distraction mm-hmm. to the political and social equality and citizenship that black people should be offered here in the United States. Now, I'm saying I don't know if that's true or not, but I just wanted mm-hmm. your perspective. Mm-hmm. Do you think there's any credence to that? or I, I did come across some... Um, Dr. Darity, D-A-R-I-T-Y, last name is spelled D-A-R-I-T-Y. Uh, Darity, he, pre- he published some research to a similar effect um, that essentially said buying black is not the answer. And I like to say that it, it may not be the sole answer because if we, if we really, really take a systems view of the black experience, right, um, in America, there it is systemic. Mm-hmm. So just like I was just sharing about, you know, where you purchase your home in the school zone, college readiness, career preparation, right? All of those things. If we look at the different components of identity construction um, for for being black in America, for the most part, it's going to come from like who you understand yourself to be comes from your social influences at at school and at work. Um, sometimes those religious influences at church, we know the black church plays a huge role in identity construction. Mm-hmm. And then, of course, what's going on at home. So now we have to take each of those components and separate them out because at home we're talking about the environment, we're talking about food deserts, we're talking about schools. So there are all these small microcosms that play this role in what it means to become liberated as as black people in America. And one part of that is our economic um, liberation and how we spend our money. The other part of it is political power and influence. But what about educating us to in, to be informed about these different aspects? So I like to think that they aren't mutually exclusive. Mm-hmm. Um, there's this concept it's called a wicked problem. Um, and a wicked problem is so socially pervasive that there's not one answer to it. So while we can talk about supporting black businesses and getting political power and even what what can we do as far as education because there's this massive shift in homeschooling black kids right Mm -hmm. um one part of that is the political power and policy are different things 
so President Biden, um, he issued the executive order, like his first day in office, advancing racial equity through the federal government. Um, and the goal was to get every federal agency um, to to just be more intentional about involving Black-owned businesses, minority-owned businesses in the federal procurement process. And that's, that's great, right? There are millionaires being made through government contracting, but that does not speak to the practices mm. of the people in office. It does not speak to the practices or the lack of awareness, the lack of compassion that people in procurement positions have, the ones right. who are making the decisions. So it's this comprehensive problem that we have to really from a collective perspective, we have to really set an agenda and be intentional and strategic mm-hmm. about how we, we overcome those these challenges. Come on, you better preach, okay? Wow. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Dr. White, we are going to take a really quick break and then come okay. back and um, ask you, you know, kind of jumping off from that, how do we reclaim our power, right? So kind of like if if the powers that be aren't going to, to, to be the ones to, to take change and to be the ones that to, to help out, how do we use this concept to empower ourselves? Sound like a plan? Mm-hmm. Sounds like a plan. All right, we'll it. see you in a bit. We are having a great time on Talk of the Town. It is Liz Bullard over here, host of Coffee and Combos. I have Dimitri Coles. He is part of Building Legacies and Communities, a.k.a. Black. And we have Bilal Tajaldeen, uh, who he's just Superman. He does, like, so <laughs> many hats. Like, I'm not even going to call out all his jobs. <laughs> Thanks, Liz. And then we have Dr. White on the phone who has, oh, my gosh, we're, like, over here processing. <laughs> Our neurons are firing. Like, we're really having a great time. Time. And and folks, if you were just joining, um, we were talking about dynastic wealth and how important it is. And, and right before the break, we ended on kind of like sometimes like the powers that be, right? They don't always use their powers to, to propel. And so, um, Dr. White, please tell us, like, how, how can we use this concept of dynastic wealth to empower us as individuals, as families, so that we can grow and, and have that empowerment? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I would be remiss to say, I would be remiss if I did not acknowledge <clears throat> the, the, the pain, mm. right? The struggle, the trauma, the microaggressions, like every living moment mm-hmm. of being black in America. I would be remiss if I did not acknowledge that. A healing, mm-hmm. and this is an individual healing, like that work has to be done. Um, earlier, we were talking about, you know, talking about money mm-hmm. in black families. So one, there are two major aspects of dynastic wealth that have to be addressed, and that's money and death, right? Mm-hmm. So if we can't talk about money and we can't talk about death, then we cannot build dynasties. Right. And... In general, a, a generational cohort, is, it lasts about 20, 22 years or so. So we're talking about three generations, about 60 years. I acknowledge and understand that it is a far stretch of the imagination to ask someone who is managing through 
unhealed trauma from six years ago, right? right? To have enough foresight to think about something 60 years from now. Right. So the baseline has to be an acknowledgement and and this trauma-informed healing process. The individual has to do that first. I had to do that work first before I could really add value to my family's experience. Um, so there is one component uh, with dynastic wealth. So there's financial wealth, spiritual wealth, this wealth of knowledge that I mentioned a bit mm-hmm. earlier. There's intellectual wealth and relational wealth, um, which includes like service and philanthropy. But spiritual wealth, it's not couched like in religion. It's not based on religion or anything. It's really this idea that the work we're doing today, um, this wealth that we're building is for more than just financial gain. So we're doing this in service to others, right? That we may not, we may not ever meet. But one component of that is capturing the family history, um, doing some genealogy, developing your family tree. And I'm speaking with my grandmother. We were working on this part of our family constitution, and my grandmother was adamant about not wanting to go back any further in our family history past her mother. Mm. So my great-grandmother, I was about 20 years old or so mm-hmm. when my great-grandmother passed. So I grew up with her. I, I knew her. Yeah. But my grandmother did not want us to go back any further. And so had I not done my own work, had I not been aware of, you know, post-traumatic slave syndrome, yeah, yeah. I would not have fully understood why she has my why my grandmother has so much resistance, but there's a pain yes. in that story, right? Mm-hmm. And so I think, you know, Dimitri, to to your point earlier when we're talking about liberation, there's also personal liberation that we have to work through as well. Because otherwise we'll be having these these conversations about money, um, and we won't get very far because mm-hmm. we have not addressed that pain. So that's a baseline starting point with taking back our power. Mm-mm-mm. So powerful. Um, absolutely. And especially, you know, I can so relate to, you know, we often do not share stories in, in the black community, especially as the generations mm-hmm. go back because there, mm-hmm. there's so much pain and, and trauma. And like as a person who has like an older parent and like the 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 connection between, you know, I think um, at the time that my mother grew up, segregation was like just mm-hmm. ending, mm-hmm. right? Like, it, mm-hmm. and so like there's stories before that that really aren't told. And um, yeah. it, it's always like I hear friends and stuff like they have all these stories. And I'm like, I don't got no stories. Mm-hmm. <laughs> right, right. Yeah. yeah. Uh, the law, Dimitri, um, anything before we take a break at the top of the hour? I guess maybe we can sort of front load a question. Um, so, Dr. Wright, I really appreciate this this conversation. Uh, one of the – so part of my, my work history includes working in philanthropy, um, so sort of organized money. And I'm wondering if we can think about how we can generate dynastic wealth without being exploitative, right? Because we know that typically the way um, current yeah. – 
the current huge wealth, right? So no one, any of us know, no one, anyone we know knows, like, the truly multi-billionaire dynastic, you know, multi-generational family yeah. wealth was derived from extraction. Um, and and mm-hmm. far enough back, it was derived from slavery, right? How mm-hmm. can we look forward and say, you know, we are going to start building this dynastic wealth in a way that is not extractive to our communities, ourselves, the people around us, our history. Um, and I think we, we mm-hmm. have to go to a break in a minute. So I, I, if we can think about that and maybe come back to it. Sounds like a plan. Oh, you good. Good I, with- got, mm-hmm. I got goosebumps. Ooh, yes. <laughs> All right, y'all. So we'll be back in about five, seven-ish minutes. About ten. Okay, we'll be back in about ten minutes, y'all. <laughs> Sometime. <laughs> All right. Thank you and be well, y'all. And on over now to a Wednesday Talk of the Town with your special guest hosts, Liz Bullard, Bilal Tajaldi, and Dimitri Coles. Hey, hey, it is Liz Bullard, host of Coffee and Combos, and we are back today with the lovely and wonderful Dr. White, who's talking about dynastic wealth. And I have Dimitri and Bilal. And Bilal, we ended with a question right before uh, break. Do you want to catch us up? Yeah, so for folks who are maybe just tuning in, um, the question at hand is uh, with an understanding that previously huge amounts of wealth have been generated through extraction, right? And that's typically uh, you pay your employees less, right? In more modern times, we try to subvert the minimum wage or we lobby against raising the minimum wage, right? Because we want to keep our bottom dollar or bottom line dollar as low as possible. And typically that is always a personnel cost, right? And so we know that that has been true for so long. If we go back farther, we see that a lot of a lot of generational wealth was um, coming from profits that were able to be kept from slavery and, and from uh, the whole the whole practice of enslavement. Um, so, the, my, Dr. Wright, my question to you before we left was, how do we look forward? You know, now it's 2023. How do we look forward and say, this is how we can build dynastic wealth without exploiting our communities, our friends, our family, our neighbors, our history? So before we went to the break, Bilal, you asked that question, I literally got goosebumps. Um, you could probably hear the smile on my face <laughs> as I'm answering this question. One of the components of the research that I conducted is called generativity. And gener- generativity is this social science idea um, that says the work that we're doing is for the benefit mm. of future society. And in the research that I conducted, I interviewed uh, 10 first-generation black founders all in the beauty industry. I profiled Madam C.J. Walker. And what I found was that there was this, this identity, right? So kind of going back to identity and how do we see ourselves as being generative, And for each of these entrepreneurs, their efforts were generative. Their efforts were for the benefit of society. So, and Liz, I'll tag you on a post that shows, that provides a visual. Oh, please do, and I'll make sure to share that. Perfect, perfect. Um, And what you all will see, what you'll see in that is there is the generative script that is the underpinning and the underlying motivation for building dynastic wealth. And, and what that means is generation wealth creator really has this identity and this narrative, right? So in the story that we tell about ourselves, 
those entrepreneurs, those wealth creators have this narrative that the work they're doing is for the benefit of not just themselves or their families, but for society. Um, and that actually comes from some research like 1950s. It was updated in the, in the early 1990s. And then some of my colleagues and I are really looking at what generativity, how generativity shows up in, in modern day spaces. So I hope that answers the question. Yeah, maybe once I see the um, the chart, sure. I'll definitely I'll definitely look to see it. It's we were you know we were talking during the break about the whole the whole process of mm-hmm. generating wealth, um, mm-hmm. and it's something I think I continue to struggle with, right? Because if in in my in my mind, if we are trying to move toward a system where mm-hmm. you know the the profit or the capital needed to create wealth may not even exist anymore right in in such ways as you know people are are taxed you know what we call their fair share right which means mm-hmm. um the more you have the more you're taxed because there's no reason why you need mega yachts and yachts on yachts yep. and helicopters on yachts and then <laughs> all the way for to, you yourself know, i want a yacht on a yacht and a helicopter on a helicopter well I mean, you know that might be a little <laughs> dangerous for flight but what we can what we can think of and then the further down you go right the less that you have mm-hmm. the less you're taxed because mm-hmm. no one wants you know i think i was doing my taxes the other day and it's just like i lose 30% of what i make in yep. a year to taxes mm-hmm. right as yeah. a as a single person with no dependents um and and not a lot to benefit from the tax code uh, so mm-hmm. it just it's a curiosity and it's something i think um i'll have to sort of wrestle with to see what yeah. it looks like going forward Dimitri? Yeah, and just to follow up, and Dr. White, yeah. I think, um, especially when younger people get involved, um, we, we notice the exploitation, so we try to put a sense of morality, like a moral code mm-hmm. on the efforts that we try to do. So, you know, we kind of say, you know, um, how can we lift uplift the most amount of people as possible without stepping on other people? Sure. You mm-hmm. know, sure. and we struggle with that as being is it possible um are like where did we start um you know is there anybody who has the answer outside of us because you know we're we're a fire we have the fire you know we have the ideas um and we're willing to implement the ideas trial and error for the most part you know um Mm -hmm. but is it a possibility because most people and i've heard this on multiple occasions in you know my place of work um, doing in the community and just normal conversations, and it seems to be an accepted fact that you know to get to where you need to get to, you need to step on somebody. Mm-hmm. You know, like everybody can't be a winner, um, and that's you know something that's um, uh, reinforced in American culture. And like you know, we have this oh, yeah. thing about participation trophies. You oh, know, yeah. you know, it, yeah. it, it, it goes all the way down <laughs> to, to that. So um, I think that's where. Um, you know, we're struggling with. I know me and Bilal, uh, Bilal yeah, are struggling right. with you and, know. It, it kind of reminds me that I think so often, you know, one of the things I like to push back against in, in, cause all three of us here, Dr. White do a lot of community work in Waterbury. Mm-hmm. And one of the things I like to push back against is the idea of the scarcity model, right? That if mm-hmm. you have some, I have less, mm-hmm. right? That is right. so far from being true that I like to operate in what, what, you know, is called the abundance model that you can have everything you need and more. And so can I, mm-hmm. right? We are not actually in direct competition with one another. My security does not infringe on your security. You know, my wealth doesn't infringe on your wealth. 
Um, mm-hmm. And so I'm really I'm fascinated from what you were saying earlier around um, the four directions of this dynastic wealth, because mm-hmm. I think that's an element that is missing from traditional sort of capitalist wealth building yeah. where it is it is really one directional and it's from the tippity top you know whoever that person was yeah. that amassed the wealth down further and further and the further down it goes the more impersonal it gets mm-hmm. right to mm-hmm. the point where you've got great-grandchildren who have trusts from relatives that yeah. they don't even know who they are right yeah. there's no real connection so I, I, there are dynamics of what you've mentioned I think that can whittle away sort of the cold, the cold approach to it, the cold mm-hmm. lump of wealth that gets spread down across generations. And I'm really, I'm curious to learn more about those um, directions when I look at the resources you'll send to Liz. And Dr. White, um, I know our time is winding up, but can you give us a little overview of, of the elements of the dynastic wealth, um, the spiritual and, and all of that that you spoke about? Um, but sure. also, um, after you give us that little tidbit, can you tell us about your retreat that you have and yeah. just share a little bit about that, <laughs> if you can? Yes, for sure. Thank you for that. Um, so much that you, I feel like we got to do this again. Y'all. Oh, my gosh. Um, <laughs> like, we could have had you here all day. Um <laughs> So, Dimitri, something you shared, I definitely want to kind of close the loop on. Um, and I think I'll be able to do that in really kind of unpacking a bit more this framework. So there's financial wealth, right, which is the, the we, be, let's be clear, there will be no dynasty <laughs> without some financial wealth, right? Mm-hmm. Um Spiritual wealth, though, and I think this one is my favorite, but I'm also an empath. Like, I'm also going to be the one always with the warm and fuzzies. Girl facts. Um, so, <laughs> <laughs> so spiritual wealth, again, not being, like, couched in any religion. It is this idea where the family has come together and said, this is the reason. This is our North Star, right, for lack of a better term. This is why we do this work. So, Bilal, to kind of go back to your question about that, um, how wealth it has been extractive, Mm. within spiritual wealth, that is where you have your family identity, the family values, but you also have the governance of your family constitution and your family trust. So within my family's constitution, we've decided that distributions of wealth from our family assets can only be used for four things. They can only be used for advanced um, training and education, um, to purchase a home or to invest in real estate, to start or buy a business, or for philanthropic endeavors. Mm. So you can only get access to this money or to these assets if you are doing something generative, right? Um, so that's spiritual wealth. Then we get into the wealth of knowledge, and that is, you know, honoring the lived experience of everyone in the family. Um, I like to share this example. I have one cousin that's a CPA. He lives in L.A., and I have another cousin that I love to death. Like, I always know what store to find him at at 930 in the morning. Right? <laughs> <laughs> so, but, but the wealth of knowledge and spiritual wealth, means both their lives have the same value. Mm -hmm. Both their voices and their lived experience bring wealth to this family. They elevate this family. 
So within that wealth of knowledge, we're also capturing what they're passionate about, what skills they have, what abilities they have or want to hone. And then we move, we take that information, move into investing in intellectual wealth where it's the family's responsibility to help everyone develop mastery. So you, my cousin, who I know where to find him, he's great with his hands. Need anything done around the house, that's who you call. So our responsibility is to invest in him, to help him get his general contractor's license or, or whatever it is that, one, brings back a financial return on investment, financial wealth, but also a qualitative return on investment because now he becomes a mentor Mm -hmm. in that space within this family. And so that skill um, leads us into relational wealth. And this is where we're talking about social capital and stewardship, you know, making those introductions. But this is also where leadership development occurs in the family. So that as we are working on our own philanthropic efforts, which again are generative, we, we have leaders in this family. We have developed and cultivated people who are self-assured, who are confident, and who are compassionate. So when they leave this family, when they leave this, you know, first annual family retreat, they go out into the world and they know from one, from where, from where they've come from, but two, who they are and how they serve to create more generative outcomes for society. So, um, those, that's the kind of work, literally, that's the kind of work that we'll be doing at the inaugural um, Dynastic Wealth Family Retreat. So we'll be having that Juneteenth weekend um, in the D.C. metro area. Yeah, so I'm excited. We're going to do some genealogy, some family history. We'll have estate planners um, talking about, you know, the governance of the family trust, but also we'll be hearing from some dynastic families as well like what have their experience been in transferring that wealth of knowledge in those financial assets as well so yeah oh my goodness i'm gonna say like the church did our hearts not burn (laughs) oh you gave us so many um wonderful tidbits and and thank you for taking the time to speak with us because uh i saw from your your instagram stories you are busy so do you you want to promote any of that or share where you'll be um you have uh, quite a few interviews and things coming up yeah, yeah. I had, I had set this goal to when I when I pursued my doctoral degree, I made a promise to myself that I would not let my research sit on the shelf. Mm. And as I began learning so much about this, these wealth transfers and entrepreneurial dynasties, I made a promise that I had to share the knowledge. So, um, so uh, prosperity now I think is one I'm really excited about. That'll be on February 28th. So Prosperity Now is a D.C.-based think tank that really focuses on advancing racial equity. So I'm excited to be uh, sharing some of my research on their platform um, at the end of the month. But all of that leading up to the the family retreat Juneteenth weekend, like, I think I'll I'll be, I'll come down off my high (laughs) somewhere around the 4th of July after we wrapped up the family retreat. (laughs) Fantastic, fantastic. Um, um, Dr. White, any last words that you want to to leave us with or, you know, where people can find you? 
Um, so I'm Meet Dr. White on all social media. That's uh, M-E-E-T-D-R White on all social media platforms. And I just want to say, like, to you all, like, hats off to you. Um, I'm not sure if you are familiar with this term or if you've heard this term, generativity. Mm-mm. But the work that you're doing, the service that you're doing, that is generative. So congratulations to you all for living, living in that. And I appreciate you all being a light for us all on the path. Oh, well, you know, truly, you know, thank you. And often in this work, you know, you don't get the thank yous in person, but I'm going yeah. to, to thank you so much because I know, you know, again, from our original conversation, I went mm-hmm. and I told my mama and that <laughs> helped her grow a little bit. And I'm going to go back and share some more because it, it really is um, an invaluable tool Um Again, like sometimes, you know, there's people I'm sure that are listening that this is probably the first that they've heard and they want to go back and share with their families so that we can Mm -hmm. grow. Right. We don't want to see those same cycles of poverty on top of poverty. And there's so many systems and things in place. Um, And so I thank you for for doing the work and sharing the knowledge on how wealth doesn't just stay with one household, but how we can do this as a community. So thank you, Dr. White. Be well. And I cannot wait to chat with you more. Thank you. Thank you. So nice to meet you, Demetri and Bilal. Y'all have a great day. You too. Thank you, Dr. White. Thank you. All right, y'all. Oh, I know y'all are excited. So listen, we want to hear from you. Please call in at 203-757-1320. We're going to take a quick break, and we'll be taking calls after that. Y'all, I had so much fun this episode, and I cannot wait to use the information I learned to create change in my community and in the lives of my loved ones. To learn more and to connect with Dr. White, please check out the episode show notes or go to the coffeeconvoslist.com website to learn more about her and to listen to more episodes just like this. Be well.